Welcome everyone, my name is Patricia Rozvora and I'm the host of Kitchen Conversations, a platform to speak about contemporary art from so-called Eastern Europe. In each episode, you're going to be introduced to one artist, sometimes also a collective, whose visual or activist practice sheds light onto the complex former socialist region with all its histories, cultures, languages, foods, but also traumas and their inevitable contemporary consequences. The podcast is a fully independent platform existing since May 2020. If you enjoy the monthly conversations, you can support me via Patreon or share the episodes with your friends or via social channels. everyone happy to have you back on the podcast and a warm welcome to all of the new listeners of kitchen conversations that are perhaps listening from overseas in regards to my today's guest and the topic of the episodes today i'm speaking to Jus siegel chief curator and director of programming at the Vende Museum, Culver City, Los Angeles. Jus uh, has published widely on German cultural history, Cold War culture and arts and politics in international perspective. I found out about the Vende Museum through some of the guests on the podcast who recommended me to check out this institution on my stay here in LA. And I was very happy to actually uh, have managed to do so. I got a wonderful tour around the museum and was able to record uh, this uh, very podcast. And I'm sure many of you are wondering what is actually a Cold War museum doing in the heart of capitalist US. And we're going to find this out, hopefully. So uh, the Vende Museum shortly was found in 2002. Uh, and that is an art museum, cultural center and archive of Cold War that explores uh, social, political and cultural change. And some of you might know that Vende is actually uh, the German term that was used uh, to describe turning point or change uh, that happened after uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And today uh, the museum uh, holds a great uh, archive uh, of artifacts uh, from that period, uh, specifically concentrating on socialist histories, but also has a rich programming of contemporary uh, exhibitions and a beautiful educational program. And more you're going to hear from Jus Siegel. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's a real pleasure. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, my name is Jus Siegel. I uh, originally uh, studied art history, but moved to history and became an assistant professor of cultural history at Utrecht University. And I mention that because that is relevant how I arrived at the museum. Utrecht University has an exchange program with UCLA here in Los Angeles. And when I was guest teaching here, one of my students 
brought me to the museum and said, this is something, a unique place you have to get to know. And uh, that is when I met with the founder and director, Justinian Jempel. We became friends. I got a Fulbright grant to work as a guest curator for one year. It was 12 years ago or so. Since then, we have been in touch. And eight years ago, he invited me back and offered me the job of chief curator and director of programming. And now I'm here. Here, here. You live here now, of course. I do. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to to not live here. So, so far from Europe. It took like, yeah, 20 hours, I think. Think for me to get here, so it. Um, I really felt the distance also of uh, of different contexts and different histories, and that's right. uh, what also interests me. That a place like this is uh, is based uh, in LA in uh, North America. Uh, can you tell a little bit about the very history of the place, how it uh, got founded, and uh, what was the the initial idea of creating such a place in Los Angeles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I first saw it here, I was as surprised as you are now, uh, probably, to find this. So it was a private initiative of the founding director, Justin. Um, at the time, he was a PhD student in Oxford, very interested in the history of material culture. And he noticed that so many people who lived through socialism were just throwing out the objects of their daily life uh, to replace them with the new consumer market. And he realized that if those objects would not be safeguarded in some way later, historians and also people with a general interest would not have that access to the stories related to those objects. So that was for him the primary motivation to start a museum. And then uh, once the story came out that he was developing this museum, he got a lot of offers of donations from private people who said, oh, I have something interesting here. But um, uh, among them also very special uh, collections. For instance, we have the part of the private archives from Erich Honecker, the East German leader, including his um, handwritten autobiography, which he penciled together when he was in prison in uh, Berlin Moabit. We have the archives from the border guards at Checkpoint Charlie, or the East German site of Checkpoint Charlie, uh, with all their facial recognition materials. We have a unique collection of countercultural artwork by Moscow-based artists in the late 1980s, early 1990s, etc., etc. So what started as a small private initiative is now a museum with more than 100,000 unique objects covering, in the first place, uh, the Soviet Union and uh, Eastern Europe. But two, three years ago, we expanded the geographical scope and it now includes socialist countries worldwide. It's so interesting yeah. that uh, that you said that people were throwing away objects because they kind of wanted to leave behind the, the communist, the socialist past to right. enter clearly into the new capitalist reality. And now here in, in North America, which is like the core of the the system that came after uh, socialism, uh, has yeah. now this wonderful collections of these objects which perhaps uh, would be lost. Uh. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And actually we reflected on that whole process in one of our exhibitions. It was called Transformations, which is also a reference to the name of the museum, Wende, of course, means change or transformation. And this um, concept uh, used to describe the period around the fall of the Berlin Wall. But for that 
particular uh, exhibition, we used objects from the collection that we repeated in four different settings. It started with an apartment with garden, which showed how objects were used as uh, items from daily life. That turned into a flea market, place where objects were discarded and just uh, thrown away almost. Then the third section was a museum that referenced the period of revaluation of those objects for their historical significance, their beauty or whatever, uh, including the scientific an analysis. And then the last part was an art studio for which we invited seven contemporary artists to be inspired by those very same objects and make a work that Reflect relates upon them. Mm. yeah that connects past and present so the same objects in four contexts that make you realize that they are seen in totally different lights when does a object have a value that can be shown in a museum <laughs> that's an interesting question and that also changes over time i mean it depends on uh, different qualities it can depend on how an object obviously looks like, if it is pleasing, <laughs> or if it is beautiful. Exactly, exactly. But it also depends on the historical context. What does it say? What stories are connected with the objects? And does it have the power? And that, for me as a curator, is very important. Does it have the power to reinterpret parts of history? So we get a lot of donation offers at the museum and without exaggeration, I think 95% we have to refuse because we are not um, a collection that can expand endlessly and that doesn't make any sense to do that. So we really focus first of all on materials that are otherwise in danger of being lost forever but also, and maybe even more importantly, uh, items that really have the power to make us think about history and probably force us to readjust our interpretation of the past. Mm. Mm. So there is quite a, a meticulous curatorial process in deciding, I can imagine, like which objects uh, and the whole yeah, process of then uh, storing and exhibiting them in uh, yeah in the right moments in combination with uh, other works of art because here you also of course uh, exhibit uh, contemporary artists and contemporary art in combination always with more archival uh, works is that correct yeah that's correct all our uh, exhibitions always have uh, contemporary art as part of it yeah and what um, kind of artists or arts do you focus on then? Uh, we invite artists who we feel have an interesting perspective on the topics we present. Right now, for instance, we have an exhibition about the Cultural Revolution in China. And the opening section is a section with contemporary Chinese artists looking back on that period and appropriating or even subverting the visual culture from that period. So there's always a connection there. Oh, yeah. Mm. And who is the audience of your museum? Who, who, who comes here? Who is interested in, in the themes you are exploring? Yeah, the, uh, that, that's hard to say because uh, people come from uh, many different uh, backgrounds. Uh, we have quite a following from uh, people living in Culver City or Los Angeles itself. But then obviously also a special interest from people with a background uh, or family background in Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union. 
we also saw that we have now our first uh, exhibition about China that many uh, Asian American people are visiting. Our next exhibition will be about Vietnam, and I suppose that will then attract again another yes, for, uh, uh, yeah. constituency. So it really depends also on the topic. Yeah, we were already speaking a little bit about the name of the museum, uh, Vende. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have somewhere like uh, information about the name uh, and what it actually means historically and where the term was used first? No, it's something we can tell if people ask about it, but we don't want to exclusively focus on the, how it was used originally by Egon Krenz and then in their Spiegel around... The exactly, because it's quite a heavy historic term. It is, for sure, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But we try to open it up a little bit and make it about changes, uh, societal and historical changes in general. Which Because are, of course, sti still developing and can. Yeah. So the name can be also understood in contemporary ways. Uh, Absolutely, in, in different yeah. And that is something I think that is very central to our curatorial philosophy, if you will, that we always make try to make those meaningful connections between past and present and ask questions, why are we seeing this? What, what does it mean to us? Yeah. Uh, do you think this same kind of museum could uh, now uh, exist in Berlin or, for example, Amsterdam? Or is it crucial for it uh, to be in, in the US, in North America? Basically, I think it could uh, exist everywhere where there is a political system that allows for it. But I think there's also a kind of, uh, I would almost say, uh, poetic um, uh, argument to be made for it to be in Los Angeles, because Los Angeles during the Cold War period was the center of the military-industrial complex. And uh, also we have Hollywood here, which, which was the dream factory that made so, produced so many movies in a Cold War context. So I think it's of a special value here to have uh, a collection that shows the perspective from the other side of the Iron Curtain, or at least opens it up, because we are not telling a story about it, we are showing materials and asking questions and try to uh, inspire discussion. As I understand, you do have the Cold War in the name of the museum, but you do focus on the Eastern Uh, let's say, political camp of the Cold War. Yeah, so the collection is exclusively uh, from the socialist countries during the Cold War period. But then again, in exhibitions and programs, we can abstract from that and show a wider context and uh, also include other parts of the world. Not only the West, by the way, but also, for instance, the Global South or the community of independent uh, countries. Um, because the Cold War was not just an East-West conflict, it was much more complex than that, obviously. Yeah, exactly, and I think this is like uh, very interesting that you do have a museum uh, specifically showing exactly like the Cold War from uh, not this duality of like exactly East-West, uh, the US versus Soviet Union, but kind of yeah taking uh, apart a little bit this history, this like uh, rich history. Yeah, I think actually, if I may, in two different ways. So first of all, we try to show that um, uh, it's really important to also include countries that are 
quite often left out of the story. So we will have exhibitions including West Africa, the Middle East, um, other parts of the world. I already mentioned China and Vietnam. But also because, um, and that is a really, uh, really also a logical consequence of our museum focusing on art and culture to show that the Iron Curtain was not something absolute, even though there were these competing ideologies, political systems, economic systems, there was a lot of back and forth between the East and the West and also, of course, the Global South during this period. And we have a lot of evidence for that in the museum, how um, scholars, artists, uh, other people inspired each other, learned from each other, and on both sides obviously gave meaning to their lives in creative ways. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, actually uh, really happy to see now uh, an exhibition about China, for example, and as you said, Vietnam. Indeed, those countries are still in, in that context neglected or not really mentioned or remembered that they also... Uh, yeah, had socialism as uh, as the system, or still or have. still have indeed <laughs> in both cases uh, yeah. in in different, I guess, different forms, right? Totally, like, yeah. But also, and that is another example how even if you have a historical museum, the 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 present is always there. I mean, uh, China is now moving in a more authoritarian direction again, and then showing an exhibition about the Cultural Revolution, which was most of the one of the most violent, if not the most violent, periods in modern Chinese history, makes sense. Um, if alone to just again open the debate and ask what are the parallels, what are the differences, how to interpret it. Hmm. So you studied or you were uh, busy in the field of art history and then you said you moved into history, but now you still deal a lot with art and culture. Um, can you tell a little bit your opinion about like how we can learn about history through art and why do you think it's important to... Yeah, to, to exactly present art in the context of different histories and different political structures and how perhaps it's easier than reading about it from books. Yeah, first of all, maybe I should explain how my transition from art history to history Please. actually yes. came to, um, to happen. So usually I, maybe it would go the other way. Or, yeah, right, right, right. right. But um, I was, uh, as an art historian, writing my PhD in Berlin, actually, in the years 1991 to 93, about the Still Art. before I was born. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you have it. About um, art debates during the First World War in Germany. And uh, at that time I was living in Berlin, in Prenzlauer Berg. And since it was relatively short after the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was, of course, surrounded by all the stories of people who were very eager to share them also with me about their experiences. And that got me really into that topic. So I wrote a little book about the German debates about national identity after the fall of the Berlin Wall during the 1990s with a focus on visual art. But that really then triggered me into, more generally speaking, Cold War history and the cultural foundations of uh, uh, the Cold War. And that is when I decided to move to history or when I um, took the opportunity to uh, become uh, an assistant professor of cultural history at Utrecht University and approach art more from a historical perspective in that sense. And I think it's something that 
still now, although it's much better nowadays, but still now is a little bit underestimated the power of artwork as a historical source, not to illustrate things directly, but in the context how art was conceived, how it was criticized, what different interpretations were connected to artworks, that all is part of a broader cultural history. I guess also what was... Uh uh, being allowed uh, to to be shown in the public space and what was censored. No, for sure, and not only in Eastern Europe, but also sure. in the West. I mean, uh, yeah, there is this uh, well-known story of the CIA secretly funding cultural initiatives uh, and possibly also being involved in the traveling art exhibitions with abstract expressionist art, which I think is very ironic because... Um, uh, this art was presented as being totally free and apolitical, but it was used as a political tool in the Cold War context. And it becomes even more er ironic if you re uh, remember that the FBI tried to halt the export of these artworks to Europe because they considered it communist art. So there are lots of paradoxes there. Yeah. Definitely, for sure. Yeah. Since you, of course, do have a huge archive here of, um, yeah, we would say Soviet art uh, and Soviet artifacts in the context of uh, contemporary Eastern Europe and contemporary Eastern European art and activism, uh, there is a lot of discussion about how uh, Soviet art uh, should be shown now, especially now after the full-scale uh, invasion on Ukraine. Uh, perhaps it does need uh, more context than we showed it so far, uh, especially that often... Um, Soviet art is kind of narrowed down to Russian art without this kind of uh, distinguishing to different countries, which you, I think, as, as you said, uh, try to really unravel and uh, really do your research thoroughly. Well, actually, um, we had a situation where uh, we had an exhibition called Questionable History, where we put up artwork, where we wanted to make the point that history is never clear cut. So uh, in that for that exhibition, we put uh, for every artwork not one but two text signs that were both historically true and accurate but completely contradicted each other in their interpretation and among uh, those works were a lot of Soviet artworks and then the invasion of Ukraine happened and actually someone approached the museum and said it is a scandal that you are showing those Soviet paintings take them off the walls immediately in an act of solidarity with Ukraine what he didn't know was that uh, most of these Soviet paintings paintings were actually by Ukrainian artists. So it's always a little tricky to make those artificial um, divisions. But my point would be that it's actually more important than ever to showcase these artworks from the Soviet period, even if they are Russian, because not every Russian artist is a little Putin. You really have to make that distinction and you really have to showcase the differences. You can't say that all of Russian history and all of Russian art and culture is now contaminated by what is happening under this crazy guy Putin. 
I think you could do a, make a lot of podcasts on that. It's, it's a difficult uh, topic and definitely it's changing with time. Of course, at the beginning, it was really important to show solidarity and give space, in my opinion, to Ukrainian artists and perhaps give them voice which they didn't have before. Mm -hmm. But indeed, if we are in a historical and cultural institution, I mean, we cannot just erase. But I you think can do both. So I did uh, an interview with a specialist in Ukrainian art in the 20th and, 20th and 21st centuries. We did uh, an interview with two historians who uh, gave their opinion about the historical roots of the conflict and uh, how it would develop. We supported the concerts of Ukrainian music for humanitarian support of Ukraine. So you can do all that without censoring your own archive and your own history because i think that's completely the wrong thing to do i guess it's also about like the balance right like how many artists of which country you show do you have a lot of uh, ukrainian art in your collection ukrainian soviet and post-soviet well not post-soviet because we only collect artifacts and artwork from the cold war period although we show contemporary, more contemporary art, art in exhibitions but that's not part of our collection -based, i understand but, mm -hmm. um, i would say that 75 to 80 percent of our soviet paintings are actually from ukraine by chance, but that's how it is. Uh, and I uh, just wanted to, maybe I, I should have said it at the beginning, but at the very entrance to your museum, you do have a, a piece of the Berlin Wall. Mm -hmm. And you, you told me that you do have more of those pieces. Yeah, we do have 11 original pieces of the Berlin Wall. One is in front of our parking lot. And then we have a stretch of 10 pieces, which happens to be the longest stretch worldwide outside Berlin. Yes, the, uh, the longest one is in Berlin. Indeed, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, which is on one of the main boulevards in Los Angeles, Welsh Boulevard, which we brought to Berlin with help of the German embassy in Washington, D.C during the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 2009. Ah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And you're thinking to uh, bring it back here to your garden, right? Yeah, we are discussing that uh, option right now. You yeah. have a wonderful garden here with a lot of palm trees. I know I that's it. so um, strange in a way to have that combination of the LA palm trees with the artifacts from Berlin and from East Germany. Yeah, yeah. For, I, I wonder like what the, the object of the wall is thinking, you know, suddenly being here in a different climate. I think they like it. You think so? <laughs> a lot of sun, a lot of uh, good energy. Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, last but not least, I wanted to speak uh, shortly about kitchen and food. I'm not sure um, how big uh, of your life uh, is... Um, yeah, kitchens and meals, but that's always like the last uh, question on the podcast since uh, it's called Kitchen Conversations. It's not really done in a kitchen, but it's always done in this more um, yeah easygoing manner with coffee or water or right. something in between. Is that also inspired by um, uh, what is in Germany called Café Klatsch? And in the Soviet Union, actually, the kitchen conversations that used to be more free because there were no bugs in the kitchen. Indeed, was, you yeah. got it right. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> While like sketching the idea for the podcast more from a conceptual side, uh, yeah, I was reading the work of Svetlana Alexievich 
who wrote uh, yeah about kitchens and yeah, about right. kitchen conversations. So I'm right. borrowing the name from her. Uh, indeed, like this off the record conversations happening somewhere uh, while doing other domestic things yeah. and not being exactly listened to or. Yeah. Hopefully less. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so speaking about uh, food, do you have any uh, home food which which you really like? Well, yeah, that that's an interesting question. What is your home? But um, if you would ask about my original home, which is Amsterdam, the Netherlands, then first of all, I have to say that uh, the Dutch kitchen is nothing to be proud about. It's pretty horrible, <laughs> I would say. You said that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But if, if I would have to pick a favorite, I think it would be pea soup, mm. which is a Dutch tradition, especially in winter. And there are great variations without meat vegetarian options but also the traditional way of preparing it is with a kind of smoked sausage and yeah that's a pretty amazing combination so that is the one thing i think i would highlight as something rather nice from the dutch cuisine yeah. but here in la there's all amazing cuisines from all around absolutely right. as in amsterdam by the way so that's also very international and you would find hardly any dutch indeed restaurants. yeah uh, it's all french or italian or from other parts of the world i have to say yeah that's true i mean i lived there for many many years and i didn't really have like proper dutch food yeah good for you <laughs> No, but uh, of course, LA is very rich in different communities with the, who bring their own food and their own restaurants. So you have more than excellent options here to try food from all over the world. I hopefully I will do that. That's definitely part of traveling and exploring a place. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for uh, the kitchen conversation. Uh, tell me, where are we now in this uh, room again? What is this space? So we space? are now in our uh, textile and paper archive room. And you see a lot of plastic objects here on the desk. Radios? Uh, that is because we are, yeah, these are radios. And that is because we are doing a uh, project with the Getty Conservation Institute in Museum in Munich and the University of Cologne, where we um, test the differences between East and West German plastics, how to conserve them, uh, and uh, yeah, how specific. to deal with them. It's very specific, yeah. So yeah, uh, kitchen conversation in a textile room with a lot of exciting objects around us. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for your time and for the tour you gave me uh, before. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. This was it for today. Thank you for reaching till the end of this episode. And last but not least, I wanted to give you some tips of how to support this podcast if you liked what you heard. Uh, you can, of course, uh, rate it and follow it on various uh, streaming platforms. Uh, you can have a look and perhaps buy the Kitchen Conversations cookbook. That is a cookbook I uh, published last year with recipes uh, of artists who appeared on the podcast and all the money from the sales goes uh, to supporting uh, this platform, of course. And lastly, you can become a patron of this podcast and support Kitchen Conversations with a monthly amount of your choice. And in return, you will receive some uh, goodies from me and a lot of love and good energy. In the meantime, take good care and we hear each other soon. <laughs>